You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast, www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, well, there's nothing you can't ask on the Savage Lovecast. It's really gratifying when something I've been saying for a very long time is affirmed by science or philosophy. For instance, good giving game, GGG, to be good in bed, to be giving of pleasure at times without an expectation of an immediate return, and to be game for anything within reason. That does not mean you have to do whatever the fuck your partner wants you to, but within reason, kind of up for sexual adventures, game for anything within reason. I've been saying that for years, and the science is rolling in. Amy Muse and Emily Impet have a new study out called Good Giving and Game, The Relationship Benefits of Communal Sexual Motivation communal sexual motivation being science speak for good giving in game, communal sexual motivation. We're going to have Amy on the show soon to talk about what she's discovered researching the whole GGG concept. This weekend I had another moment of, oh yeah, thanks. I've said that for a long time and gotten grief for it, but hey, and this isn't science. This is philosophy catching up with me. Clancy Martin this weekend writing in the Sunday Review section of the New York Times has a piece. He's a professor of philosophy at the University of Missouri, Kansas City, and the author of Love and Lies has a piece called Good Lovers Lie. I have always said that relationships are not depositions, that you don't have to answer everything truthfully, that sometimes the most loving thing that you can do for someone is look them right in the fucking face and lie your face off. I don't think it's okay to deceive people routinely. I don't think it's okay to lie to someone about your finances, your health status, your history, whatever. But truthfulness or honesty is the best policy. That gets all the good press. We never take a moment to appreciate really the lubricant that lies are in a long-term relationship. They really take the edge off. They make they smooth things out. They keep the machinery humming along. As Clancy writes in the New York Times, if you want to have love in your life, you'd better be prepared to tell some lies and to believe some lies. If honesty is what matters most to you, you might as well embrace a life of silence and become a Trappist monk. The piece concludes, love is a greater good than truth. No marriage, no parent's love of a child should be scrutinized like a pathologist examining his cadaver, or I would assert again, like a prosecutor cross-examining someone under oath or taking a deposition. Interestingly, in his piece, Clancy mentions his second divorce. Um, he cheated on his wife. She found out. And he unpacks that incident, that, that one time he cheated on his wife, his second wife, at a conference by basically walking you through the lies that he told himself that made it, that made it happen, that made it possible, that resulted in him cheating on his wife, which he didn't want to do or intend to do. By the time we were back in my hotel room, I was telling myself, I am a happily married man. I am not going to have sex with this woman. I lied to myself all the way up to the point when she said, let's get into bed. And then he got into the bed because he was all along planning on having sex with that woman and telling himself these lies as sort of a stopgap, you know, to, to make it possible for him to get into a position where he would have sex with this woman. He lied to himself and told himself that he could risk going right up to the edge because he wouldn't do it because he was happily married. And his wife finds out and it becomes this unforgivable sin. And I would only argue, the only thing reading this piece that I wanted to argue back to Clancy and his second wife was this. Here's the lie that she told herself. Here's the lie that she believed. 
that an infidelity, a routine one-off, instantly regretted infidelity, like the one that Clancy describes, not an ongoing affair, not emotional infidelity, not serial adulterous behavior, but a one-off mistake was an unforgivable relationship extinction level event. That this having happened, the marriage could not survive. That is a lie that a lot of people tell themselves. That infidelity, that adultery, that a one-off like that, a mistake, means a marriage or a relationship has to end. And that lie becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. And knowing what we know about adultery and infidelity, knowing that almost all relationships, long-term, committed, multi-decade relationships will be touched by infidelity at some point, we should stop telling ourselves this lie that a relationship can't survive the almost inevitable infidelity because then we are really writing death warrants for our relationships and our marriages before we even begin them. If We all agree that this is an unforgivable thing. If we tell ourselves that lie, it becomes an unforgivable thing. It shouldn't be unforgivable. It is something that we should default to working through and getting past as opposed to default to relationship extinction level event. Not saying that every marriage or relationship could or should survive an infidelity. Sometimes that is the sign that it does need to end and is over. But often it ain't. It ain't that sign. But we've convinced ourselves, so many of us, that it is. And that is a lie. And that is a lie that we should stop telling each other, telling ourselves, telling our friends, telling our children. Happy fucking Valentine's Day. And happy fucking Fifty Shades of Grey comes out this Friday week. That's going to be a nightmare we'll all have to get through. Let's all hold hands and we'll get through this week, this long, ugly week together. And now your calls. Hey, Dan. I'm a 24-year-old questioning single female person calling from the West Coast. And I haven't come out yet. And it's not because I'm terrified, although I am. It's because I don't know what my own sexual orientation is. Without dragging on too much, I had a pretty poisonous dose of conservative Catholicism while growing up. My issue is that generally, I find men more attractive as romantic partners and women way more attractive as sexual partners. But what's weird is that I'll go through these big time flips where it will suddenly be the other way around. I fantasize about sex with men, only men, and then find women much more desirable for relationships. I would call myself bi, but it seems weird that I don't find both sexes attractive at the same time. I'm frustrated because I've been oscillating back and forth without a real pattern for at least 12 years, so I don't really know what to come out as or if I should even come out at all. Maybe I'm just straight, but thick boobs are really pretty. Or maybe I'm gay, but I've still got some religious repression hanging on from my past. I have no idea. My questions. A. Is there a name for this back and forth switching of preferences? B. Do you have any information, resources on people who discover their orientations much later in life? For instance, is it common? And when can I expect for my preferences to solidify if they do at all? C, should I come out as garden variety queer or questioning or wait until I have a surer sense of myself? I want to come out properly if I need to and only once, but I also think that 24 is a bit too late for all of this. Thank you for all of your help and advice. You are bisexual. 
you are fluid. That's the word for the back and forth that, that you've experienced. You know, sometimes you're more sexually attracted to men, sometimes more emotionally attracted to men, sometimes you're more emotionally attracted to women, sometimes more sexually attracted to women. And these things seem to, for you in your experience, seesaw back and forth and be kind of gender exclusive that when you're romantically attracted to men, you're more sexually attracted to women and vice versa. You are fluid and you can identify as bi. There would be so many more out by identified people in the world if this notion, this idealized by definition didn't terrorize people out of identifying as bi, that bi is somehow being interested in both equally and in the same measure and at the same time. And that's just not how most of the bisexual people I know and we hear from at the show and write me at the column experience their bisexuality. A great many have a distinct preference for one gender or the other romantically, sexually. That's why you hear some people now saying that they are heteroamorous but bisexual, attracted sexually to both, only interested romantically in opposite sex partners or bisexual and homoamorous, into both sexually, only attracted romantically to a same-sex partner. You are heteroamorous sometimes, homoamorous sometimes, bisexual all the times. So you are bi with a little fluidity around your Amory. All right? It's not that complicated. And I, I do think that, you know, the people I hear from constantly, Charles Blow, uh, the New York Times, had a really great column about this, that he had a hard time identifying him as, as a bisexual man himself despite having sex with men and women because he was not really romantically attracted to men. And so he flounced around wondering if he was confused, wondering if his inability to be romantically attracted to men was some internalized homophobia or biphobia that he couldn't unpack despite being one of the most liberal progressive thinkers and writers on the planet. And it just wasn't so. This was just his sexuality that he was more romantically attracted to women but sexually attracted to both and he wasn't damaged or deficient. That that brand of bisexuality – that common experience of bisexuality was as valid as other experiences of bisexuality. And your experience of bisexuality, Kala, is valid. Buy and fluid. You slosh around. Enjoy the ride. Make yourself a little sailboat and dart back and forth and have fun. Hi, Dan. I'm a 21-year-old college student in a bit of an ethical dilemma. Yesterday, I was told that someone in my group of friends raped a girl he brought home from a party last fall. I wouldn't really consider this guy a friend, except he's in the same college athletic team I'm in on campus, so I'm around him all the time and will be probably for the next two years. I found this out when talking to a friend I made with whom I have lots of mutual friends. Um, I have no reason not to believe what this new friend is telling me because my friend on his team can kind of be a misogynistic piece of shit. I even remember him telling our group about taking this girl home as if it was completely consensual because she was a virgin at the time. So now, obviously, it's not my place to call this guy out because this girl clearly is not ready or willing to come forward. But I'm wondering if you have any advice on how or even if I can confront him about this. I mean, I still have to be around this guy for a really long time, and I really doubt that this urge to kick his ass or to call him out will ever leave my mind if I just keep this to myself. I listened to your call a few times because it wasn't clear and still isn't and I couldn't get you on the phone. It wasn't clear who you got this from, whether it was from a friend uh, in your circle or whether it was from the woman that this guy raped or is alleged to have raped. Uh, if you got it from her, of course, it, it, it has more weight. If this is the rumor mill churning 
Well, that has to be given weight too, but you also have to give weight to the fact that it may be the rumor mill churning. So what I think you do, my advice to you, what I would do in your situation is I would go to this guy and say, here's what people are saying. What the fuck happened? What went down that night? Because this is what I've heard. What you're doing by saying something like that is drawing him out, not calling him out. You're also communicating to him, and you're still calling him out, but you're also communicating to him that there are social consequences, right? That he will pay if he conducts himself in a shitty, rapey way on campus, in his life. If his victim chooses not to go to the authorities, and I hope if she does choose to go to the authorities, she goes to the police and not the administration. But if she chooses not to go to the authorities, there will not be legal consequences for this guy that could bring him to his senses, act as a restraint in future, get him to fucking pull his misogynist douchebaggy shit together and not conduct himself, not nuke his own life by acting this way for the rest of his life. There will not be those legal consequences, but there can be on your team, in your school, in the social circles that you share, there can be social consequences. In a legal setting, he deserves the presumption of innocence, of course. In a social setting, not necessarily. He needs to know, and you can communicate this to him, that there will be a price that he will pay. Perhaps not a legal price. Even if she did go to the authorities, who knows, months out. What would be possible, if anything, would be possible legally? That's one reason a lot of rape victims don't actually report their assaults to the authorities because they realize or they know or it's been communicated to them that this is going to be a he said, she said that gets them legally nowhere. But socially, there has to be consequences and there can be consequences and you can be the engine of those consequences by going to him and I wouldn't lead with, you raped somebody and I'm here to talk with you about it. I would go with, what happened? Because people are saying this about it. And then if he describes what happens and it's rape, throw the rape label on it. If he minimizes what happens and you think it's rape, you can put the rape label on it. But men have to hold each other accountable. It's good that you have this impulse to hold him accountable. And I think that you should hold him accountable. I think that you should perhaps stage an intervention. And in your shoes, I would. But again, I would lead with what the hell happened, not don't go in there and say, this is what happened. I know what happened. Ask him what happened. See what he has to say. Particularly, again, if you have this information second or third or fourth hand, not right from his alleged victim. Hi, Dan. This is Catherine, a street girl living in Portland, Oregon, who just got dumped by her boyfriend. I'm a college freshman, and I thought I had found a guy that I really liked until he suddenly decided that he no longer wanted to be with me on Saturday. Obviously, he has the right to do that, and I wish him all the best, but I wish that he would have told me why I could go forward and sort of know and learn from my mistakes. And I'm wondering if it's okay after you've been done to, to sort of ask your ex what went wrong. Um, I don't know if that's asking too much or if that's pushing him, and I certainly don't want to do that. You clearly haven't listened to all 470-whatever of the Savage Lovecast, or you would know that you can ask if you want to ask, but you probably don't want to ask because you really won't like the answer, most likely, whatever it is. You know, if you say, please, just tell me what it was, be honest, it could be something neutral that couldn't be helped. 
you don't, you want children. I don't want children. Like those sorts of circumstantial or logistical things. Like I'm going away to grad school for eight years. And so it just is unrealistic for us to try to have an LTR all that time. Maybe in 10 years, if we're all in the same town, we can circle back and see. But what if it's, I don't like the way your spit tastes. What if it's, I'm not physically attracted to you. What if it's some aspect of your character or your personality or your body that for someone else is going to be a non-issue or an attractor and he busts out with body, 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 blah. And then this thing that as you move forward and you date other people that you wouldn't necessarily be self-conscious about, you are suddenly going to do what? Control for change or just be painfully self-conscious about for the rest of your fucking life. When someone dumps you, you just have to infer that they had a reason. You don't necessarily have to know the reason. You don't necessarily want to know the real reasons. They had their reasons. You can make one up. You know, if you were a really shitty girlfriend or boyfriend, yeah, when you get dumped, introspection may be called for. If you were an anger bomb, nutbag all the time, if you were unpleasant to be with, if you were selfish and ungiving, you might have to do a little self-assessment and correct or you will get dumped and dumped and dumped forever. But I think that introspection is something you should do on your own and without necessarily a lot of input from the person that just dumped you. Because you could wind up hearing, if you ask, if you press, could wind up hearing something you cannot unhear and something that makes it very difficult for you to move forward with any confidence into the relationships that are coming your way after this dude. And sometimes the best person to ask isn't the person who dumped you, but your friends. The people who've been there with you and witnessed you perhaps getting dumped two or three times. To go to them and say, what is it? What am I doing? I had a friend once who got dumped again and again and again and again. And he came to us, he came to his little circle of friends, like, oh my God, all these guys. And we all looked at each other and I think collectively, subconsciously, telepathically, we all decided to stage a little mini intervention. And we were like, you know, you are the common denominator in all of these failed relationships. And what we've observed, friend, is that you're good to your friends and you're kind of shitty to your boyfriends. You take them for granted. You don't treat them very well. You're demanding and always angry for some perceived real or imagined slight or failing. Like some mistake that we would make, you could shrug off and forgive. We're just friends. But a mistake your boyfriend made was unforgivable and you had to drill down into that shit. And so, caller, maybe the person to ask isn't him. He's unlikely to be honest with you. And perhaps if he was, you would regret it. The person to ask are the witnesses, your friends, the people who watched this relationship unfold, watched it end, perhaps watched your previous relationship end. Ask them if they think you're doing something wrong or if you're just drawing the short straw again and again. How normal is it that I don't really want my boyfriend to come in my mouth? I'm just, I'm just not into it. I'm, I'm so excited about every other aspect of growing down on him but I just can't handle him coming in my mouth and it's starting to feel like a big deal. So it's just like a very rare condition that I have, which is that I don't want come in my mouth, rolling down my throat, actually. I mean, I'm fine with it being in my mouth. I just don't want to swallow it. And I'm just wondering if that's a big deal. I sometimes hear that I am constantly telling uh, women that they have to do for men X, Y, and Z, and I'm always taking the selfish piggy man side. 
But I've staked out some controversial territory on the swallowing after a blowjob issue. Uh, note that I said swallowing after a blowjob because once he's come, the blowjob is over. You have done your blowjob duty. I don't think you owe them a swallow. If you like blowing him and you don't mind cum in your mouth, spit it out or let it run out. If he's laying on his back as he comes, use your soft palate to close the back of your throat and just let his semen roll back out of your mouth onto his dick and sack and into his pew. You don't have to swallow it. That's my position. I think oral comes standard. I've said that both ways. Oral comes standard. Any model that doesn't come with oral should be returned to the lot. That applies to men and women equally. And also, you know, if oral doesn't matter to you, you can go get a model that doesn't come with oral, right? And if you don't like oral, look for someone who isn't particularly interested in oral. But oral ought to come standard. So I'm a big backer of oral. Oral is on the menu. Oral is column A. But I don't think you have to swallow to be a good cocksucker. That's not advice that I follow. But that's advice that I give. I think... Swallowing is opt-in. And if you're blowing and they're coming, blowjob over. You did your blowjob duty and you took your pleasure from it. Sounds like you enjoy blowing him. Sounds like he would get blown more often if there wasn't pouting about the fact that it didn't get swallowed after the blowjob was over. Guys, guys, as a guy, once you've come, the blowjob is done. What the person who blew you does with the cum, that's up to them. Hi, Dan. Um, I'm a 33-year-old separated female living in the Bay Area, and I just uh, first wanted to say thank you to you and the Tech Chevy at Rescue for all you guys do through listening to your podcast over the years. It really helped me to realize that I was in a very bad relationship for me um, and get the courage to get out of it and leave my husband, and I'm, I'm in a much happier situation now. However, I have a question for you. Um, through the end of this relationship, I really became honest with myself that I'm actually very kinky and very much into BDSM and that I'm not going to be able to function in a monogamous relationship in the future. It's just not something that works for me. So I've been dating um, and I've been doing some of the things that you have said in your podcast, like put little hints about being GGG and stuff up on your online profile and what have you. So, um, but the response that I'm getting is really disheartening. It's like once I talk to a guy and he starts to figure out like where I'm at sexually, it's like their brains short circuit. I don't know how to describe it any other way. And it's like, I just become a sex object then. Um, and that's obviously not what I want. Like I'm a person, you know, I have feelings and I would like to find somebody that's compatible. So my question to you is, when do I start rolling all of this stuff out and how do I roll it out? Cause what I'm doing isn't working. Um, but at the same time, I really don't want to go too far down the rabbit hole with somebody just to find out that I'm really not compatible with them for the long term. You've put GGG in your online profiles and it seems to elicit responses that are too sexual too like instantly <laughs> out of the gate. That's the problem. Yes. Yes, exactly. It's more like instead of getting responses like, Hey, let's meet for a coffee. How are you doing? I'm getting more responses like, Hey, want to fuck, you know, mm -hmm. which is not necessarily what I'm looking for solely and completely. Have you tried responding to some of those guys with dial it back? All right. I'm sexually adventurous yeah. and pretty sexually open, but I want to establish emotional compatibility first. And I want to find a nice guy I can do dirty things with. So show me that side of yourself first. Have you said that to these people? 
I have said the the brief version of it, more like dial it back, you know, that's coming, it's not putting out the right vibe, it's coming across more as creepy and not as, like, exciting. And then I don't hear anything back. I don't know if there's, like, because the ego's hurt or, or, you know, it's just not, they didn't get what they wanted from the get-go. I don't know. Like, mm-hmm. at this point, I've completely removed myself from being online at all because it's just not worth it, you know? Mm-hmm. Well, I think you should press on both fronts. You know, as I've said a million times, you go to a big kink event, a big kink convention, straight or gay, you meet two kinds of people. You meet people who were born kinky and you meet people who fell in love with someone kinky. So you can meet people through normal channels, a normal personal ad. You can also be on FetLife. You can be on kink-specific places. Um, And, you know, you can have the GGG wink in your profile if you like. And it's really common to see that at, say, OkCupid to see GGG uh, on people's uh, profiles as, you know, a, a, a marker just to like laying a chit down and saying sexually adventurous and open to people who are and just press on all fronts. And then you have to sift and winnow. You know, you'll meet nice guys who are crappy in bed. You'll meet guys who work for you in bed who are not nice guys. And you just have to right. keep you have to keep flipping through that Rolodex, that Holodex until you find somebody that works for you. Right, right. And I think for me, too, I'm a little gun shy because I just don't, I don't want to bring hundreds of guys into my bed. You know, like, I don't really want to increase the number of people that I have in my in my holodeck um, much more than it already is. I'm not saying you should bring hundreds of guys into your bed. But the thing about online dating is you do have to bring hundreds of guys into your head, at least briefly. True. Because unlike going okay. into a bar where you scope the room and you instantly sift who you might be attracted to or might be interested in talking to from everyone else, which you do silently without having to interact with them individually one at a time, online dating, you have to interact with everybody in the bar individually one at a time briefly. And you have to, right. have, a thick, right. you have, to have a thick skin about that. If somebody like says a disqualifying thing in their first email, da, 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 don't be like, oh, online dating is horrible. Like that's the price you have to pay for this service. And it is a service for this right. benefit. It is a service. And it's a benefit. Like in our modern world where, you know, you don't – it's harder to meet people at work, harder to meet people on the street, harder to meet people anywhere else. You do kind of need that, you know, that place you can go, whether it's a physical place like a bar or a club or that online space where you can go where people are free to approach you. And if people are disqualifying themselves in the way they approach you, then just shrug that off. Shrug it off, shrug it off, shrug it off, shrug it off, shrug it off until somebody approaches you in the right way. Okay. Okay. That makes sense. But have a thicker skin about it. Have a thicker skin about it because a lot of people complain about online dating because they have all of these sort of dispiriting interactions. And if you, right. And, if and you, it is disheartening. It is disheartening. But if you think about it, you have all those same dispiriting interactions when you go to a club. You just don't know you're having them. You're just not aware right, that's true. that you're being rejected. You're not aware that you're rejecting people by the, by the dozens, by the hundreds in a single night. Because right, you're disqualifying right, them sense. based on how they look, how they're comporting themselves, whether they're too drunk, whether they're, you know, you know, a skulking Jeffrey Dahmer-esque loner in the corner, whether they have too many friends around them. You know, you're instantly – Whether like, they're a long talker or whatever. Right. You're instantly sorting and sifting and it's imperceptible. No one's really even aware that they're being sorted and sifted. But when you're doing it online, everybody's very conscious of being sorted and sifted and it – Pains people and people just have to say, no, 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 this is just the way it works. Works this way in a bar, but we don't, but it's a little more frictionless. There's a little more friction when you do this sifting and sorting online. But you still okay, meet good, cool. you still meet good people in bars and clubs and out in the world. You can still meet good people online. You just have to re- reconcile or resign yourself to that more friction heavy experience of it and not be shredded by it. 
Okay. I can do that. Absolutely. Good luck. Thank you. Thank you so much for the call, Dan. I really appreciate all you guys and everything you do. My pleasure. Thank you. Hi, Dan. I'm a 28-year-old female living in New York, and I identify as kinky. I have been active in the kink community here for the past four years, and in the last 14 months, I have devoted myself to better self-awareness, accepting my kinks and my desires and understanding myself better. In this time, I've realized that I'm different with kink in my life. I'm happier, more confident, more myself, and just better when I'm able to have my needs fulfilled. My kinks are part of my identity, and I identify as a masochist, a bottom, and a submissive. In discovering that this is who I am, I've also realized that any relationship that I'm in will need to have these elements in it. I have not been and will not be sexually satisfied unless these elements are part of my relationships. My question is actually related to my family. My mother and I are very close, and I have been wondering whether or not I should come out to her as kinky. I know that my sex life should not be any of her business, but here's my concern. My mother was raised Catholic and is fairly open-minded. However, she grew up in a household witnessing domestic violence, and as a result, was very vigilant about raising me to be a strong, independent feminist woman. Because of her history, she is hyper-aware of signs of domestic violence and is rightly very against emotionally and physically abusive relationships. Because of the kink activities that I am consensually involved in, my body frequently displays physical evidence of the kinds of play that I am into. I do try to avoid having this evidence be in particularly visible locations, but this is not always possible. So far, I've been able to explain these marks away thanks to my job and other vanilla hobbies, but I'm wondering if I should continue to do so. I also know that given the relationships that I have, there will almost certainly always be marks on my body that could be seen as evidence of abuse, but are in this case evidence of a consensual and happy relationship. Furthermore, as I am in DS relationships, I wonder that my mother might in the future see me being deferential to a dominant of mine and mistake it for me being taken in and controlled non-consensually by a man. Because of all these things, I feel that having to come out as kinky to my mother may be inevitable. But I'm wondering, do you think it's better to come out to my mother now before any awkward questions have been asked to give her time to accept that her very independent feminist daughter is also a masochist, a bottom, and a submissive in the BDSM world? Or should I wait until she confronts me about it at some time in the future? Wait until she comes to me with concerns about my being in an emotionally and physically abusive relationship and then reveal to her that actually I'm in a consensual kink relationship and also that I've been doing this for years and years and she's never known about it? Or is it better to just stay silent and hope this never comes up? I want my mother to know that what happens within my relationships is consensual and that I am okay and she doesn't need to worry. When you got to the hope it never comes up option, the whole room went ding, 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 ding. Everyone was like, that's that's what you hope for. That's that's what you should do. You should hope it just never comes up. Uh, and it may never come up. I'm a firm believer when it comes to uh, the specifics of your sexual conduct. And some people argue that sexual uh, – some people argue that kink is a sexual orientation and they want to be out about it to destigmatize kink in the world. And I'm actually fully supportive of that. Jillian Keenan, she's a writer you might want to – read on that subject. But I think that parents sometimes when it comes to your sex life, you run them on a need to know basis. They kind of need to know if your partners are going to be male or female or some other point along their gender spectrum or both or all or pan or whatever. They don't necessarily need to know exactly what it is that you do in the bedroom. Your concern, of course, is given your mother's history of uh, with domestic violence and that trauma that you don't want to 
re-traumatize her in any small way. You don't want her at home worrying about you. Uh, if you have marks or you're in a DS relationship and there's some public perceptible performance of that, that mom may pick up on and have a problem with. But you also say that mom has raised you to be a questioning, assertive, kick-ass feminist woman. I assume that your mother is a questioning, assertive, kick-ass feminist woman as well, and that she's not going to sit at home holding her tongue, worrying about you if she's noticed the marks or she's noticed these DS dynamics in your relationship that she will just straight up ask. She's not going to allow you to be in what she thinks may be a, a, a violent relationship, non-consensual violent relationship for years and years and years before she works up the nerve to bring it up. I imagine your mother being who she is and the parent she was, she'll bring it up immediately. And at that point, your kinks, your uh, being into S&M has shifted from mom doesn't need to know to mom needs to know. Mom needs to know now what's going on because you don't want her thinking ill of your partner if everything you're doing is consensual and what you want in your life and how you want your life structured. And isn't that what part of what feminism should be all about? You being able to decide who you are and what you want and go for it and get it. And you can frame it that way when you talk with your mother about it at the point when your kinks and your sexual activities and your identity as a submissive shifts from something mom does not need to know to something mom does need to know. Hi, Dan. I'm having a difficult uh, moral and ethical problem I'm struggling with, and I really hope you can help me figure this out. I'm a 54-year-old straight male, and I have some significant health problems. I've had three heart attacks, two of which my heart stopped, and they had to bring me back to life. I had the first one when I just turned 39, and the most recent was about nine years ago. I had a stress test recently, and my cardiologist tells me that I seem to be doing fine at this point in time. Now, over the years, I've dated a lot, been in and out of a variety of sexual relationships of various lengths. Some I told about my health issues up front. Others, I never mentioned it because I knew there was no future and it didn't really matter. The problem with telling someone who I'm going to be intimately involved with about my health issues is that they can't help but treat me differently when we're fucking. I try to tell them that my health is currently fine, but I know it still makes a difference in the way we have sex, whether they admit it or not. If the situation were reversed, I would have concerns for my partner while we were being very physically active. I recently had a first date with an amazing 36-year-old woman, and it seems as if we've fallen hard for each other, even though we've only gone out once. We'd only made out in my car at the end of the date. Now, we have plans to spend the night together Valentine's Day and have vaginal sexual intercourse, as you would say. Here's the thing. It's been a really long time since I felt this way about somebody, and I think we have the potential to have an epic relationship far into the future. I don't want to hold back my health history from her and give her the slightest impression that I would ever deceive her about something. It's not a good way to start a relationship that we both seem to agree to be long-term. But at the same time, I'd really like to have sex with her, our first sexual encounter, without my health being an issue dangling over our heads. So I, I want it to just be real, if you know what I'm saying. So should I tell her, would it be okay to spend Valentine's night with her with my, without my health hanging over my head? If you don't want to be treated as fragile, uh, don't mention the heart condition, your history with these sounds like severe heart attacks. The first half a dozen times you fuck, you know, it's a new relationship. You don't have to disclose all your health issues. It's not a, 
corporate merger. You don't have to lay it all on the table. You don't have to open all your files. It's not a deposition. You don't have to answer every question either. So prove that you're not fragile. Fuck the shit out of each other half a dozen times. And then, you know, when you get to that stage in a relationship where you, you know, share your romantic histories, your medical histories, which is really when you're thinking about merging, you lay this all out and say, doesn't mean I'm fragile. Doctor says I'm fine. Heart's in good condition. Don't treat me as fragile. And then when they do treat you as fragile, which it's almost inevitable that they will, that they'll be conscious of it at first, maybe the next time or the next few times that you have sex, just bring it up. Just say, I see what you're doing. Please, please don't treat me this way. It's not sexy to be treated as fragile and breakable at this moment. And you know what? If I have a heart attack while we're fucking and die, what a great way to go. Have a little bit of a sense of humor about it. That can help diffuse the tension as well. Good luck. Hi, Dan. So I'm wondering how to feel about um, a recent thing my husband and I have been doing to like stimulate a relationship. Um, I've had fantasies for a long time about him being with other women and him fucking other women in front of me. Sorry, by the way, I'm like a 35-year-old, mostly straight woman married. We've gone to strip clubs recently and have had like increasingly sexual experiences at them, like starting with he and I just like watching girls and getting drinks, moving on to him getting lap dances or he and I both getting lap dances, moving on to ultimately like him and I getting a private room or booth or whatever for got like $400 or 600 I don't even know. And the woman, um, like, jerking him off. And I kind of, I like, I was like, yeah, let's get a private room. I was the one who pushes it. Like, I'm like, go get a lap dance. Totally me. Like, and he's like, okay, if you're sure, honey. And anyways, like, I guess I just didn't realize, like, the private room was going to be, like, that hardcore. What happened there was she made him come. And it, like, totally turned me on. But it was totally upsetting at the same time. Like, and it's still, since it happened, like, I masturbate to it all the time. I want to do it again. But, like, it's also, like, traumatic in a way. And I'm wondering, like, if I'm, like, reliving some prior trauma. I mean, I've had boyfriends who cheated on me. I've been other women in other relationships, blah, blah, blah. I wonder if it's that or if it's just I like being with my dude and other women. I don't know. I'd love your advice. So you say in in past relationships there was cheating. And you've been on both sides of the cheating thing. You were the other woman, but you were also cheated on. Essentially, it was like a, a couple, of, a married couple I met in grad school and they were poly and like open and out about it. And I thought that was cool. And we started hanging out. And eventually we all like had sex one night. And then and, and when we all had sex one night, that was when I realized I could not like eat pussy ever. <laughs> not her. Just, just nope. You have to go. You, have you, have, wait, wait. I have to interrupt. Have you seen Garfunkel and Oates, their song, The College Try? No. <laughs> 
<laughs> you should you should go watch it. Uh, it's a little kind of phobic. If two dudes were singing it, uh, it might be a problem. That I recommend it might be a problem for some people. But it's basically, you know, they thought they were bi. They were going to give it the college try. They were, you know, getting outside their comfort zones and exploring their sensuality with other women until they got face-to-face with pussy. And then they're like, nope, nope, can't do this. Not eating pussy. L- less, less open and progressive than I thought I was. Yeah, I gave it the college try. And, uh, and no... Um, and then, so like, but what did happen, like when we all had sex was I found out he was like amazing, like best lover ever in bed. He ended up like falling in love with me. He left her, even though I was like, no, no, do not. No, I cut off contact with him. I cut off contact with her. It was like a horrible ending. Like, so I like feel guilty that I was like responsible in some way for like their marriage. It elicited all of these powerful emotions in you, though, did it not? Oh, for sure. It was, it, oh, exactly. It, like, incredible. Your yeah. blood was pumping. Even in the, like, it sounds like the horrible sort of denouement of this uh, thing, it was, you know, made your life interesting for a while. Hopefully you weren't stalked. Hopefully you weren't threatened. But there was chaos and drama and, and even excitement in some way in all of this, Correct. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Like, really exciting. And yeah. there was chaos yeah. and drama and excitement probably when you were cheated on. Right. And, but it was also right. – it was but it was very destructive. The, the This guy falling right. in love with you and upending his life uh, against your wishes to be with you when you did not want to be with him. And it was unpleasant when you were cheated on. And so now here we are. You're in this stable, committed relationship with a, a dude you love. And there's, and in some way, perhaps what you've discovered is a controlled way to have that danger, risk, chaos, drama, even a little bit of trauma, but all safely harnessed. You know, infidelity, cheating, uh, and all this drama. It was a beast that, you know, ran roughshod through your life in this experience with the poly couple when you were cheated on in the past. And it seems that with your husband, you found a way to put that beast in harness and have it pull your thing, your connection with your husband. But it still feels it like it elicits this like risk response, danger response, even trauma response, drama response, because you've associated that yeah. outside sexual contact with life upending shit storms. And I think that's why right. you're a little scared yeah. when you do these things that you enjoy in a safe, controlled way, because you're really playing with that. You know, you're, you're, you're sandpapering that particular nerve. You're returning in a way to that place of chaos and drama and trauma, but in a way where you're in charge of it and in control of it and it's in harness, but it's still a beast that is in harness. It still could be a danger, right? You know, what if it slipped the harness? What if it slipped right. out of control? Right. No, yeah. And so uh, that said, you know, there's also now, now think about the, the other danger for people in long-term committed sexually exclusive relationships, which is boredom, right? <laughs> And everybody who's like got drama and excitement in their life, who's worried that it's too exciting and too much drama and too adventurous, they never seem – they never pause to think of the alternative, which I hear about all the time in my mail all the time. People in sexually dead marriages where there's no excitement, there's no connection uh, and it's because nothing thrilling. They don't have sexual adventures and and the the, the spark dies. The the embers all die and I'm not saying you have to go outside the relationship to have that kind of sexual adventure, that kind of excitement but – you that's what works for you. And I don't know if you're a female cuckold. Uh, perhaps you are, which is called a cuck queen is actually a thing. A woman who's aroused by the thought of her partner being with somebody else. Right. 
But you might, but you might be that thing. I like this. What? So I don't know if I technically am. So like the idea is like, never want him to like go off and like do something on his own, you know, like, like I would want to see it and be there and like be part of it somehow. <laughs> but you know, like I also said, I don't want to eat pussy. <laughs> so like, I, I, it's more like, I just want to, I guess want to be in a threesome with him or. There are a lot of threesomes with a man and two women or two men and a woman where there is no cock sucking between the dudes and the guy, guy, girl, and there's no pussy eating between the two women and the girl, girl, guy. Right scenario that you know that right. eating pussy is not a requirement when two women have a three-way with a man it's that's opt that's opt in <laughs> and you can be explicit about that okay. when you negotiate a threesome with somebody else all that said you know right. I, i'm sure that poly couple that you played with that you had sex with that you were intimate with that you know they felt that they had everything under control and this was a safe way to have adventures or have other people and other relationships in their lives and they didn't expect this you know upending emotional sort of attachment. They didn't expect that he would ever fall in love with anyone else. And he did like, that's always a risk, but that's a risk in closed relationships too. A lot of monogamous relationships right. end right. because somebody develops feelings for someone else. So being monogamous or sexually exclusive, it does not necessarily protect you from that. I don't know if like strip clubs are like a way to do this or, you know what I mean? Like that's kind of, you know, is there a better I don't know. Well, I mean, I think you're saying like go for it, right? I am kind of saying go for it in a controlled, measured, baby step way, constantly checking in with your husband and your husband constantly reassuring you that this is something that you guys do together and there's something in it for you that you're not cool with him running off with anyone alone. And, you know, if constantly being very cautious and conscientious about your feelings and your centrality to these experiences is the price he has to pay to have you and also be able to be with other women occasionally, I'm, I guarantee that's probably a price he's willing to pay to be very careful about you yeah. <laughs> and, and your sense of security because that's what makes this possible for him. And, you know, anytime he wants to – you guys want to do this, want to get someone else, you, the, the question that you as – the cuck queen or the cuckold in this scenario, you're allowed to ask is what is in it for me? Like we are sexually exclusive in the sense that our sex that we have with each other or with other people is about our thing. So you can't just run off and fuck right. anybody or fuck anybody who doesn't know about me or that this is our thing. And sometimes that means like, you know, uh, if there's a cuckold couple and she's free to do whatever she wants, like the guys she's with have to know that she has a husband who's enjoying this too, whether he's in the room or not, that there's this circling back to him and touching base with him, whether it's, you know, right. cream pies or just telling him about it or even the the guy that she's sleeping with, you know, giving him grief about it or getting on the phone with him or being in the room with him or picking her up from their house in front of him. Like there's this interaction with him that makes it sexy for him and a guy who wants to be with a woman to have no right. interaction with a man that he's not the wrong he's he's disqualified so all of that should apply here to you guys that there has to be this pivoting back to you and this involving you because that's what you get that's you know he gets to be with other women every once in a while you get this feeling of panic and erotic humiliation and turn on out of it and so if that's not in yeah. it then it doesn't happen and he's going to have to make an effort to make sure that's right. always part of it. Right. And you're going to have to assert yourself to make sure oh. that's always part of it. And maybe. Yeah, and, right. That's uh, hard. <laughs> and, and strip clubs are a place where you could do it safely. Like, uh, you know, the, the, the women you meet at a strip club, you know, hopefully you're going to a 
good place where people are not being trafficked and there's no one there who doesn't want to be doing the job and you should talk to the women there. Uh, You know, they're not going to fall in love with your husband in the, in the private room. Right. Right. They're not, they're, they're not looking to date married men with wives who come in for co-ed lap dances. They could give a shit. So there, that's a good, safe, expensive way to scratch this itch. But you can also go online and you can find women who might be up for this kind of adventure, who might be, you know, they call them bulls when it's a cuckold situation where the man is being cuckolded. I don't know what the females are called in those situations. Not cows. That doesn't sound very sexy. But... Unicorns. I think it's unicorns. <laughs> yeah. I swear, I think it's unicorns. Yeah, unicorn is the woman who is by and, by and up for a relationship with an opposite-sex couple. But you're looking for something distinct and and special, which is a woman who hopefully is – partly aroused by fucking somebody else's husband in front of her that that power dynamic right and that you know kink aspect of it is also a turn on to her you don't seem too worried so i guess i guess it's good it's like i mean i guess right like because i do feel terrified well, the, mean it's like a bad thing it, necessarily it's part it's of it, not right? a bad thing necessarily and what you do with that terror is that just makes you thoughtful and conscientious about how you go about this because there are risks inherent in this okay. With you getting hurt, him getting hurt, sexually transmitted infections, going to bed with a crazy person, that other woman being a crazy person potentially. Right. Um, right. You know, your husband stepping out of line in some small way that then makes you feel as if you've been exploited or taken advantage of or right. disrespected. So you guys have to be you know, communicating constantly about this and constructing this little universe where he can cuckold you. In this safe, controlled way that in the moment elicits all these really powerful erotic feelings for you without making you feel exploited, without making you feel terrible afterwards. And it becomes this pleasure-a-thon, this like little universe that you guys have created together where you can, you can step in and do this crazy thing and then step back out of it. You don't want it okay. to be a, a thing that spins out of control and upends your marriage like, with, like it did to that yeah. poly couple. Your relationship where your husband could have sex with somebody else and perhaps catch a bad case of feelings, slightly higher risk of that happening. So you guys need to talk about that and how to control for that so that you don't take your relationship for granted or explode it by accident. And that may, that may limit the kinds of women that you do this kinds of play with. It might just be strip clubs or sex workers. You know, or, you know, somebody, right, who's, somebody right. who's way out of your orbit. It can't be anybody from work. It can't be anybody from our lives, anybody we know. But some, like, no, I, game stranger we met in Vegas. Like, yippee, let's do yeah. it. Yeah, that's the situation. So, lots for you to think about. Good luck. Give us a call back and let us know yeah. how it goes. This sounds wonderfully exciting. And I hope your husband loves you for it and doesn't want to do anything that might imperil this deal for him, this Yahtzee moment that he's going to have again and again. Being with you means he gets to do this. He should not do anything that could risk being with you. Um, Thank you. You know, love you. Love you too. Good luck. Thank you so much. Bye. Dear Dan, I'm a 30-year-old gay male with a question about boyfriends, friends, and boundaries. About a year ago, a close friend came to visit me and stayed at the apartment I share with my boyfriend. On the last night of his visit, he went out and invited my boyfriend to tag along. I was busy studying. My boyfriend and my friend didn't come home until 6 a.m. the next day. When I asked my friend where they had been all night, he gave me a faded look and blurred out the name of the venue. I grew suspicious as the venue had a provocative name, so I looked it up on Yelp. I was shocked to find pages upon pages of comments detailing some pretty heavy erotic behavior. 
the place is pretty much a dive bar with music in the back room where dudes go at it all night. At first, my boyfriend denied doing anything, but a couple of days later, he broke down and told me that they took Redlin, drank themselves to the point of locking out, and hooked up with other guys. All these things were completely out of character from him. We were, we've been together for five years, and he's always been a sweet, drug-free, loyal, and honest person. From my friend, whom I've known for, fi- the, for the past 15 years, it sounded just like any other night. My boyfriend and I figured things out. He apologized for lying and cheating. He demonstrated genuine remorse, and we embarked on a journey to rehabilitate our relationship by being honest about our needs. My friend, on the other hand, showed little to no remorse. First, he didn't write anything that had happened, but later changed his tune and it was obvious I knew. He said he didn't see any wrongdoing because he was in an open relationship and those things are totally okay for him. He tried to contact me via email later on, but he was mostly on the defensive. I got the sense that he was more interested in absolving himself of any blame rather than trying to understand why I felt so hurt. It's not that I believe he formed my, uh, he forced my boyfriend into doing anything. He's a grown man. But I do think that my friend had a part in letting things get out of hand and then concealing it and blaming drugs and alcohol rather than actually taking responsibility for it. I've cut this person out of my life since then. This event has, was the last in the series where he did something shady or mean and made me feel like I was being the prude. My boyfriend and I recently got engaged, and now I'm confronted with the reality that I will not be inviting this friend. I'm at peace with it, except when one of our mutual and very close friends brings it up and urges me to fix things. So my question is, do I have a legitimate argument to shut this person out of my life? I feel like he, yet again, provoked a toxic situation where everyone ended up getting hurt. I'm simply tired of being a casualty in this lame friendship. Any advice would be greatly appreciated. If you don't want this guy to be a part of your life anymore, if you don't want to maintain this friendship because he's toxic and reckless and this is just one more glaring example of his toxicity and recklessness, uh, your friends, your mutual friends' feelings about whether you should patch things up, even my feelings about whether you should patch things up are entirely irrelevant. You want him out of your life. And so he's out of your life and you do not have to invite him to the wedding that your relationship with him was always perhaps a little tenuous because of his toxic, reckless bullshit. And he hit the self-destruct button. He nuked your relationship with this night out with your partner. And maybe you're, you know, coming down on him so hard because it makes it a little easier to forgive your husband to be that somebody has to walk the plank for what happened that night. And it can't be your fiance because then that relationship that you value is over And so you've found it inside yourself to forgive your fiancé and part of what made that happen or made it a little easier was not forgiving your friend, your toxic, reckless friend who isn't responsible for your boyfriend's actions that night but perhaps was complicit in some small way. Maybe he was pouring booze down your boyfriend's throat. Maybe he should have said to your boyfriend as your friend said, we should probably get the fuck out of here. Before you do something that you regret and something that I will wind up being blamed for. But he didn't say those things. So he's out. Not going to be in your wedding party. Not going to be at the wedding. Not going to be a part of your life. That is absolutely your choice to make. 
Hi, Dan. I'm in my early 20s, and my partner and a couple that we're friends with, um, we're going to a sort of queer, kinky Valentine's Day party. It has um, a playroom and a dungeon and all that good stuff. Um, we're all in open relationships and sexually open to experimentation, but none of us have been to something like this before. I was wondering if you had any advice for what to discuss, um, you know, as couples and as friends beforehand, and etiquette advice for once we're there. Thanks. Zoe Tersh is the founder and curator of thiswink.com, a safer-work online event listing for kink-aware happenings. She recently has traveled all around the United States interviewing people about their experiences with BDSM for a book she's currently working on called American Kink. Hey, Zoe, how are you doing? Hi, Dan. Great talking to you. It's nice talking to you, too. So presumably you have been to uh, kinky parties before, dungeons and play parties so uh, for those out there who haven't been to one of those things, uh, what to expect in etiquette? Run us through. All right. So firstly, there are a lot of different kinds of kink parties out there. And I wish I knew a little bit more about which party um, the caller was attending just because there are so many different possibilities. The most important three steps that I would tell anyone brand new to this is go to some sort of social event that corresponds with the party first, if possible. There are usually tons of those. In the kink scene, they're called munches. Some parties also host happy hours. You can go to them, meet people who have been before, and find out what to expect. Mm -hmm. If you can't do that, the next best thing is just to go to the website, find the rules, familiarize yourself with them the best that you can. Mm-hmm. And then with the people that you're attending the party with, in this case, I believe it's two open couples, talk about what you're hoping to gain from the experience. If there's something that you definitely know you want to try, if there are things that you definitely don't want to try or get involved with, and whether or not your interests vary, and if that means that you will be splitting up at the party. And then there are lots of more specifics that go into that last part. I want to second your advice to, if you can, hit a munch or, or a um, happy hour with uh, attendees or the organizers uh, or, or people who regularly attend the, the party that you're planning to go to. Because then you've broken the ice in advance. You've met a few people. You've had a couple of conversations. So when you roll into the party, you don't have that uncomfortable moment of looking at all these strangers looking at you and wondering, do I say hi first? Do they say hi first? How do you break the ice? The ice is broken when you arrive. Right. And for safety reasons, a lot of these parties actually require that you attend one of these events first. I had a couple of other items I wanted to throw out to see what you thought of uh, what you thought of them, Zoe, and whether you agreed. Um, a good thing to bear in mind about going to a, a kink party or a play party or a dungeon, not a zoo. It's not a zoo. You don't get to walk around staring, and it's certainly not a petting zoo. You don't get to touch anybody who hasn't invited you to touch them. If you're not a That's regular, absolutely right. If you're not, you know, sometimes people who aren't, you know, hardcore kinksters or regular attendees around something like Folsom or IML or Valentine's Day, like one-off kink party, will go to a dungeon or a play space they've never been in one before, and they just think that oh, all social norms and rules are off here, and they behave in ways that they wouldn't behave anywhere else. That's absolutely true. I think that we can we can all kind of learn from um, Jamie Dornan's recent visit to a dungeon where he... <laughs> Jamie Dornan, the star, the male star of Fifty Shades of Grey, who is going to play in film the most sort of well-known, high-profile fictional kinkster in history and is now running around giving interviews shitting on the kink community just so people know that he himself is not kinky. Please go ahead. Just wanted to tell people who Basically. Jamie Dornan was. 
um, that's that's pretty accurate. And he went to a dungeon to see what kink really is like, apparently after he shot the kink scene too. But anyway, and he went there expecting a show. That is a quote that he gave to many publications. He was expecting a show, wanted a show, and didn't feel that he got one. Well, that's because kink events aren't shows. It's not television. Therefore, interacting with people. You can watch if you want to learn. But certain parties even have regulations for how far away from the scene you have to be standing if you're watching. I mean, people really care about respect at these events. And if you want to watch a scene to be educated, that's great. But it's good to inform the people you're watching before they start with this. Mm-hmm. that you're not taking them out of what they're doing. My other piece of advice, let's see what you think. Not a costume party. Not well, not unless it not unless it actually um publicizes itself as like a, a costume party. Fine to go in <laughs> fetish wear, fine to go in kink gear, but some people will show up at, you know, who've never been to a kink party before or a play party before dressed as Maleficent from the movie or dressed yeah, as It's not a rave. Yeah, it's not a rave, it's not a party. Like, go, you know, if you're worried that you don't have the right outfit, something understated is better than, like, grabbing the fairy costume from your closet that you wore to Burning Man. Absolutely. And if you're going to be playing, then a a Burning Man-like costume is the opposite of what you want. You want to be more streamlined. I mean, corsets are cool and everything, but go for practicality. If you're planning on taking something off, then wear something that you can take off easily and, you know, not have to lug around or you know, stash in a pocket of a jacket or a coat check or whatever. Fairy wings, not optimal. <laughs> and my last bit of advice, uh, and we're, we have Super Bowl fever here right now in Seattle because this Sunday the Seahawks will be playing the whoever's to win the whatever. Uh, when this show airs, we will know who won the whatever, the Seahawks or the other dudes. Um, so if we, if the Seahawks won, yay. If the Seahawks lost, who gives a fuck? Um, but there's this thing that's being said now uh, in football places about doing that dance in the end zone after you scored a touchdown that you should, you know, maybe you shouldn't do that. Maybe you shouldn't do a dance in the end zone. And the advice is when you get to the end zone, act like you've been there before that. If you do this great big celebratory dance, you're kind of acting like you've never scored a touchdown before in your life. And I actually think that's probably good advice for a play party too. act like you've been there before. If you just walk around with your jaw in your lap and you're gasping and putting your hand over your mouth or giggling in a corner, you're going to look like an idiot. And, and even if you've never been there before, even if it's your first touchdown, it might be better to try to act like you've been there before in the end zone. And, and that advice in the end zone, does it also, do you think Zoe applies to the play space, the dungeon, the party? You might yeah. want to like try well, to act I like you've been to one it, before. I think that it is important to be honest if you haven't done something before, but you're right. Gawking at things is just not appropriate or respectful. And if, if you're easily heaved out by, you know, getting hit or seeing someone have their hair tugged and crying no in a way that might appear unpleasant, then a play party of kinky nature is probably just not a great Valentine's Day date for you. I'm assuming that if, you know, these people are attending the party, they already have a general interest in kink. And that should suppress the urge to giggle or gawk if the urge is even present. I hope it I hope it's not. <laughs> I hope that whoever's attending really respects the activities that are going to be going down at the event. Really quickly, Zoe, before we let you go, tell us about thiswink.com. So thiswink.com is an event listing for five major cities in the U.S. Right now it's Orlando, New York City, Chicago, Portland, Oregon, and San Francisco. Every week it's updated and it just lists different parties, events, educational workshops, meetups that have anything to do with kink. It goes like Monday through Friday, um, 
basic info like price, where it's going to be, what to expect when you get there. And it's a great place to find corresponding munches for play parties such as the one that we're discussing right now. It stands this the wink stands for this week in kink, and there are no photos. I'm looking at the website right now. It's safe for work. You can take a look at it. You can even look at it on your phone on the bus. You're not gonna have to. You're not gonna have anybody look over your shoulder and gasp. It's just info yeah. and text. The site is thiswink.com. Thank you, Zoe, for jumping on the phone. And everyone should look for Zoe's book coming soon, hopefully, American Kink about uh, BDSM all over the United States. Thanks for jumping on the phone today, Zoe. Appreciate it. Thanks for chatting with me, Dan. Hey, Dan. I am a newly single, straight female in my late 20s. Crazy thing just happened to me, and I'd love to hear your opinion and see if you've ever heard of anything like this. So I'm out with some friends, one of my first weekends being single, and I meet two guys in their mid-30s. They're both really handsome. One of them's a little messier than the other, and I was just super attracted to their personalities, though. They're so mature, and they just seem so much you know, more fun than the really, really wasted, you know, early 20s guys at the bar. So um spent the whole night hanging out with them. So one of them was really good at conversation. We had great conversations. And the other one was a little bit drunker. And he eventually turned around and got engaged in the conversation. And when he did, he literally put his hand around my waist and grabbed his friend and was like, oh, my God, do you see this girl? She's so hot. She's so beautiful. Like, oh, my God. And it turned into, he was just like, sign me up. Where where do I sign? Like he, and he kept talking like that the whole night. Very handsy, which I didn't even mind. I mean, you have to remember, I'm newly single, just got out of a sexless relationship for a long time. And I was totally into it. I was obsessed. So we had a really fun night, um, the three of us. But somehow he didn't get my number and he was acting really weird. And his friend, I kept asking his friend, you know, what's his deal? Does he always do this? And he's his friend just kept saying, like, oh, he's weird when he gets drunk. He was always weird in college or whatever. And so I was like, okay. But it was a little odd. And they ended up actually getting out of the cab. We all shared back to the neighborhood together. And I have no way of contacting him again. And he has no way of contacting me. So I panicked on my way home. And what any newly single girl um, would do, I Googled him <laughs> because I stalked him. I stalked the shit out of him on social media and he didn't come up anywhere there. So I ended up Googling him and um, he came up as someone, he came up right away. So normal people don't come up when you Google them. And he came up right away and um, he's actually been to jail for arson. He, as a prank, started a fire a uh, deadly fire in college and he was convicted for third degree arson and spent two years in jail and then got out on parole. And my friends knew about the fire who are from the area. Like they, it was a really big tragedy. I, I, I'm just so shocked. Like I don't even know how to process this. Like I was so into this guy and, but his life must just be like, no wonder he acted so weird. Like maybe he just doesn't want to bring me into his potentially fucked up life. Like, I don't know what's going on and I, I'm just dying to know more and at the same time obviously think I'm crazy to want to know more. I would just love to hear your opinion on, you know, do people date people who have been in jail? Like, is that a thing? And how do they act? Are there like stereotypical emotional issues that come about and how do people generally deal with this? What a crazy fucked up situation. Um, I'm going to get to your question. Do people date people who've been in jail? Uh, but first, I want to address uh, his technique the night you met for fear that young listeners, male listeners may 
misconstrue uh, or assume that this sort of grabby, handy, aggressive, drunken, complimenty stuff is a really great strategy uh, when you're first meeting someone, that you were receptive to this, that it was actually kind of what you needed coming out of this shitty relationship and feeling a little sexually neglected and and that kind of aggressive attention, you welcomed it. Uh, that's a little like lottery action there. That's a That's a big coincidence. In most cases, this would be, you know, drunken grab handy shit in a bar. A lot of women would really resent that treatment. And some women who didn't want to be treated that way might not speak up in the moment and object to being treated that way because women are socialized to be deferential to men. That you were into this, into the way he was treating you doesn't mean that any woman out there would have been into being treated this way. And, you know, guys, if you're listening to this, don't adopt this as your default strategy. Get messy drunk and grab women's asses or whatever in a bar because uh, the odds that you will get slapped or you should get slapped or that you will be doing this to someone who smiles and laughs and kind of subtly is trying to indicate that she would like it to stop and is dying inside and you can't read her cues because you are drunk and being an asshole are really high and you don't want to be that guy. So – that he lucked out in this moment and busted these moves on somebody who was into them. Please don't extrapolate from that, that these are good moves to adopt broadly or generally. All right. Do people date people who've been in jail? Yes, people date people who've been in jail. Uh, that you were able to online stalk him a bit and find out about this, this tragedy, this horrible thing that he did, the sequence of events that he put into motion. He didn't start a fire clearly, you know, based on how you characterize the event and what you read. He didn't start this fire with the intent of harming or killing anyone. But if that was the end result, then he was punished for it, manslaughter or negligent homicide or whatever, and went to jail and is now on parole. What a tragedy. What a stupid lapse in judgment, you know, lapses in judgment, like grabbing some woman's ass in a bar when you're drunk and being handy and sexually aggressive, which may or may not be welcomed. What a lapse in judgment that was. And I'm sure he, if he is a human being with a conscience, lives with it every day, regrets it every day and is aware of it every day. Maybe that's why per his friend, he drinks every once in a while. Maybe he drinks to forget and to get loose and to be comfortable in his own skin. Maybe he drinks too much. You might want to check with his friend. But people do date people who've been in jail. And, you know, you give people a second chance. I think you would if you wanted to date this guy. You, you said you didn't get his phone number, but now you know you know his name, you know his history, you know where he works. You can get in touch with him via social media or whatever. If you do want to date him, I do. you, you sit down with him sober and you talk with him about this. Maybe not on the first date. Maybe you demonstrate that you, despite knowing this stuff about his history, are interested in him by going out on a regular old hangout date. Go see a movie, go have some dinner, suss him out about other shit in his life, see if he brings it up. If he doesn't and you're not comfortable continuing to see him without hearing how he characterizes this, hearing how he's processed it, how he understands it, how he frames it, how he expresses his regret for it. If you need to hear that stuff to continue dating him, you bring it up on that third date. Not that that first grab handy night was a date necessarily, but if you hang out again, the next time you hang out, say, I did what people do. I read about this. I read about it before our second date. So obviously I'm willing to see you despite knowing this, but I want to hear about it from you. I want to talk with you about it and then see what he says. He makes excuses. If he minimizes his responsibility, if he obfuscates, if he lies about it, maybe not somebody you should continue to see. 
But if he's honest and forthright, sincerely remorseful and open with you about it, that those are really good signs. Those are indications that he is a man of good character who made a terrible, idiotic mistake and paid a price for it. A mistake that other people paid a much larger price for, but he also paid a price for. And then in that moment, you use your emotional IQ to determine whether or not he's someone you want to continue to see despite having been to jail. And always remember, there are lots of people out there who are shitty, shitty boyfriends, girlfriends, whatever friends who've never been to jail. So whether or not someone's been to jail is not the only metric by which you can judge whether someone's going to be a good partner or not. Good luck. Hey, Dan. This is a caller from episode 422, and I called in with a question about um, I was living with my parents and was working with a Christian conservative organization, and I wasn't out yet and wasn't sure what to do. Um, and you gave me some advice and said call back when I had done that. And um, I'm calling to say that I came up to my parents, and they're fucking awesome about it. They've been like, so supportive and like we've talked about it a ton and it's been really chill and awesome and we're even going to like a Christians in support of the LGBTQ community uh, conference this Saturday with uh, the author of God and the Gay Christian, Matthew Vine. And I did come out to my job about three weeks ago and they fucking fired me, which was unfortunate. Um, And it was, yeah, it was done in a hard way. Um, but crazily enough, the day after I was fired, someone asked me if I needed a job, like just totally randomly, this guy I used to know, and I'm working with another faith-based nonprofit, um, that knows I'm gay and they're totally cool with it. So that's redemptive. Another faith-based organization is actually open and awesome. And, uh, the other organization is a little slow on the uptake, but, um, I... It sounds like some there's some grassroots stuff in the organization that fired me that will hopefully they'll be more accepting. Um, so it's a bummer that that happened, but it works out worked out great that now I'm with another organization that is totally affirming. Um, and I just wanted to say thank you for your encouragement. And you said I had till next November, and I got it done like a couple weeks ago. So I got like eight months of extra credit. So there you go. Thanks, Dan. Congratulations. And hey, the lard works in mysterious ways. You lose your job at the hateful Christian organization and a not hateful Christian organization is right there waiting in the wings with a job offer. It's a sign from Jesus. I want to say this though to any parents out there who might be listening. It's great that when you came out to your parents, they immediately responded so positively and they were so supportive uh, after you came out. But it's important that you communicate that you would be supportive uh, of your children if they were lesbian, gay, bi, or trans before they come out to you. There have been instances where kids killed themselves because they thought their parents wouldn't be supportive should they come out. I was briefly suicidal as a teenager because I didn't think my parents could ever accept me as a gay man or a gay boy, and I wanted to spare them the embarrassment of having a gay son. And I thought the good boy thing to do would be to off myself. Didn't wasn't didn't think about that for very long. Glad I didn't do it. There was just a case in Belfast where a 14-year-old girl named Elizabeth Lowe, who had come out to her friends as a lesbian, killed herself because she was certain – she was a Christian. Her family was conservative and Christian. She was certain that her parents could never 
love and accept her and only after she killed herself because she was certain her family would never love and accept her. And it's just heartbreaking to read what Elizabeth's dad had to say after her suicide. She was very mature. She knew what she wanted and she knew her own mind. We would have been very supportive. Parents, if you don't want to have to pass tense, that would have been supportive for your queer kid. Let them know. Let all your kids know. And it's not just the kids that you suspect might be queer. It's not just the kid who you think that kid could be queer that you need to go to and say, lesbian, gay, bi, trans, straight, whatever, we will love and support you. You want to err on the side of saying that to your kids, whether you think they need to hear it or not, because by the time you find out that they did need to hear it, it could be too late. Sorry to get dark on such a happy call. Congratulations again. Uh, and tell your parents uh, that I love them and I love that they love you and I love that you love them and enjoy Matthew Vine's conference and his talk. He is, as you heard last week on the show, he is amazing. Uh, and I think it's great that your parents are going with you to his event. Thanks for phoning back with that update. Hi, this is in response to episode 432 and the Bible study with Matthew Vines. Dan, I think it was a poor call saying you want to see the churches damaged and destroyed by their homophobia. The right-wing fundamentalists are constantly accusing the LGBT community of trying to destroy the church, so you're kind of proving them right on that point by making those comments. I also found it a little bit insulting when you basically asked Matthew, wouldn't it be easier just to turn your back on your religion? As a gay Christian myself, that question bothers me almost as much as, wouldn't it be easier just to stop being gay? Or to make a more equal comparison, it's like asking an atheist, wouldn't it be better to believe in God just in case? Beliefs aren't something that can be turned on and off. Yes, they can change over time, but that doesn't come as a result of a conscious decision to do so. Anyway, sorry for the long rant, but I needed to get that off my chest. Hi, Dan. I'm calling about episode 432 and the caller who was wondering how to signal to his homophobic in-laws-to-be that he and his bride were in support of gay marriage. And one thing my husband and I did at our wedding was in the program and in the invitations, we invited our guests to make a donation to Love Makes a Family, which was the gay mar- the pro-marriage equality organization in Oregon at that time. So I would encourage them to do something similar in Ohio. Hi, Dan. I just had a suggestion for the woman that called that owns a small business and had a trans woman waiting in line uh, for the women's restroom. My suggestion is you have two restrooms that are exactly the same. Um, I'd change the signage so that you have non-gender specific restrooms. Problem solved. And we're going to leave it there. 206-201-2720 is the number here at the Savage Lovecast. If you want to record a question or a comment or give us a follow-up call with an update for a future show, give us a buzz. 206-201-2720. Pump, the Pacific Northwest's biggest, best, and only amateur porn festival, my amateur porn film festival, is going out on tour. We're going to Philly February 21st, San Francisco February 25th through 28th, LA in March, Cleveland in April. Go to humptour.com for tickets, information, and dates, and information about submitting films for next year's Hump Film Festival here in Seattle and Portland. Follow me on Twitter at FakeDanSavage. Follow Zoe and This Wink on Twitter at This Wink. The Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech savvy at-risk youth and Nancy. We were all wishing you guys a happy Valentine's Day, and we will all be back at you next week with another installment of the Savage Lovecast Cast. 